Hello, space fans, and welcome to the Deep Astronomy Podcast. My name is Tony Darnell, and I'm from deepastronomy.space. And this podcast is being recorded on anchor.fm, and then it's being syndicated to a lot of other places. Now, you may have already been listening to some of the content that I've been posting on Anchor and also via Spotify and all the other uh, places where you're listening to this podcast. And I, but this is going to be a slightly different focus of a, of a podcast. I'm going to still do that. Those are my hangouts that you've been listening to. I've been, these are my hour long discussions with professional astronomers about different things. And I'm going to post the audio on, on this podcast uh, every time we have one, but this will be something a little bit different. This is my podcast straight to you. Uh, I wanted to call it the Deep Astronomy Show, and I still might, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Right now, it's just me talking into a microphone, but there might be other guests going on, and especially because one of the things I like about Anchor is that if you're on it, you can send me a response, an audio response, and I can listen to it and incorporate it in the podcast and answer it and talk about it. So I would encourage you to do that if you're on Anchor. If you're not, then please send me uh, any kind of uh, uh I'm on Twitter at, at Deep Astronomy. You can comment on this podcast. You can send me an email at tdarnell at deepastronomy.com. So there's all kinds of ways you can reach me. I'm on YouTube at Deep Astronomy, uh, and you can you can send me a message that way as well. So lots of ways we, we can interact, even though this is a sort of a one-way <coughs> medium right now. So what I want to do, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with this podcast, other than test ideas for things I want to discuss that I can't really do on my YouTube channel or Facebook or any of that other kinds of things. Uh, but if you are listening to this and if you like it, then I hope you'll share it with people and let then help me grow this humble podcast into something more. I'm going to be recording a few more segments and then I'll post this as an episode. I want to thank you all so much for listening and I will hopefully this will be a good thing. So we'll see. All right, it's time for me to start commenting on this Proxima B, uh, Proxima Centauri B exoplanet business. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, this about me, I am very skeptical of life in our galaxy elsewhere outside of the Earth. And I will promise in the course of this podcast that I will tell you more about this as time as we make more episodes. But lately, I've been looking at my news feed and I'm seeing a lot of highly speculative papers coming out about whether or not Proxima B, which is a planet around the, one of the closest stars to us, Proxima Centauri, that on the commenting on the habitability of this, of this exoplanet. Now, let me back up a little bit and say that if you don't know what an exoplanet is, it is a planet that is in orbit around other stars. And we have been inundated with discoveries of these new uh, of these new bodies primarily from the Kepler Space Telescope and also with numerous ground-based telescopes and when we look up at these stars there are two main ways that we can determine if there is a planet in orbit around a star one way and the first way that was developed is called the transit method and this is what kepler used the kepler space telescope used and it's also what the transiting exoplanet survey satellite or tess which has currently started its two-year survey looking for exoplanets does is it measures tiny dips in brightness of a star as the planet moves between us the earth our line of sight and the star itself 
So when you see a tiny dip in brightness, you can infer, while we can't see the planet directly, that there is something moving in front of it, and that something is probably a planet. And from that little dip in brightness, you can get two things. You can get the size of the planet, because a bigger planet will cause a, a bigger, larger dip, or you, you can also get the... Uh, and you can also get the period of, a, of the planet, which is how long it takes to go around its star. So if when we when we look at the universe and these stars using the transit method, that's one way we can find whether or not there's a planet in orbit around it. But then, as you can imagine, that requires a very fortuitous alignment of the planet, the star and us so that we can see. The, the dip in brightness. If the planet is orbiting, say, from if, from the, if we look at the star from the top down of the orbital plane of the solar system, we won't ever see any dip at all because the planet won't pass in front of it. So it requires a certain geometry in order to be able to make this measurement. The second way that we find exoplanets is by something called a radial velocity method, which it takes a spectrum of the star, it looks at the star, splits up its light, and looks at all the little dark lines that occur in that spectrum of the star, and watches how those dark lines wobble in the spectrum. That means the star is moving. And that wobble is, is thought to be due to the pull, the gravitational pull of a planet in orbit around it. Now, that is not sensitive to the geometry that we're looking at. It doesn't require that the planet pass between us and the star. As long as the star wobbles, we can see it. And this has a the advantage of also not only giving us more candidate exoplanets to choose from, but it, it also gives us different information. From that measurement, the radial velocity measurement, we can tell that the mass of the planet, how much it weighs, how much, you know, is it dense like a rocky planet or is it not so dense like a, like Saturn, right? Saturn is a gas giant here in our solar system. Is it more like that? And we can also get the period, the, the, the time it takes for it to go around its star from that information as well. So we have two methods, the transit method, which tells us the size of a planet as well as its year. And we have the radial velocity method, which tells us the mass as well as also its year. But there are other ways of, of getting exoplanets. I'll talk about those in other podcasts or like, you know, microlensing and, and other techniques that we can use to find exoplanets. But those are the two big ones. Well, a few years ago, the European Space Observer, the European Southern Observatory, um, confirmed the existence of a planet around Proxima Centauri, which is a red giant star, the closest star to us at about four and a half light years away. And the mass, the, and they did it using the radial velocity method. So that means we know its mass, and we know, roughly we know its mass, and we know its year. And this exoplanet is really strange. What we know, we know that first of all, here's the things that that confirmation has told us. We know that it has an orbital period of 11.2 days. That's its year folks, 11.2 days to go around the star once. We also know that the amount of starlight it receives, it should give it an earth-like temperature if it has an earth-like atmosphere. Remember, we know it's uh, because we know its period of 11.2 days and because Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf, which is a much smaller star than our sun. And it, and it gives off about 65% of the radiation that our sun gives off because it's so close. 
we should, or it should, have more or less the same amount of temperature as our Earth does. It also has, this is the third thing that we know, it has a minimum mass of about 130% the mass of the Earth. So it's just a little bit more massive than than Earth is. 130%, so it's 30% more, or 130% times the mass of the Earth. So it's bigger. Uh, and that's all we know. We don't know anything else about Proxima Centauri b. So which brings me to my little point that I want to make in this segment. I'm seeing a lot of news come through my news feed about how it's still possibly a very habitable place. Now, there's a lot of things that go against there being any life on Proxima Centauri b. Primarily, the fact that it's so close to, the, to its star and orbits in 11.2 days, that means it's tidally locked against the star, which means that it's, it always has, the planet always has the same part of the, the same face toward the, the star. It's tidally locked. It rotates at the same rate that it revolves around the sun. So there's always a dark, or there's always a dark side and there's always a light side on the earth or on the, on Proxima Centauri B. That's very, we would imagine it might wreak havoc on any life that might be there. We it may not. It's possible, but it probably does. So it's also so that's another thing um, is that it's tidally locked. Another problem arguing against life being on Proxima Centauri B is that red dwarf stars like Proxima Centauri early in their lives are extremely active, meaning that they spew out lots of solar flares and solar energy that could potentially strip away any atmosphere that might be around the planet. Remember, we don't know if there's any atmosphere there. All we know is that it's roughly the size of the Earth, a little bit bigger, and that it orbits the star every 11.2 days. That's all we know. So everything else we're just speculating about. Okay, so so now what? Well, personally, I think this is a a stretch to say that it's a habitable planet. But now I'm starting to see papers come out that say, well, wait a minute, hang on. Maybe there could be habit. This could be habitable if a lot of things occurred. And one of the things they're saying is, well, one thing that could happen with a planet that's 130% more massive than the earth is it could have a lot more water on it. So even if the star Proxima Centauri blew away its atmosphere and most of its atmosphere and water, some of it could survive. Well, okay, sure. But you know, it's not, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, it's like the old Jewish saying, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. Okay. We don't know. And I think, but I think people are so biased toward their being life in out, finding life out there that they're basically willing to give up a lot of their skepticism and their reason that uh, this might not be the case. And I bring it, I say it that way because <laughs> let me just back up a little bit and say one thing that I don't admit very often in public. And that is that I'm an atheist. I do not believe that there is a God. I believe I've, I've lived most of my life as a person looking at the world through sci a scientific lens, but I have mad respect for people who do have faith in Christianity or whatever religion they have, uh, because I think it's important. And I think there must be something there to it that I don't see, but I madly respect what they believe in and I would never trash it. 
But there are others, atheists like myself, who I call militant atheists, and you can imagine who those would be, who are angrily saying to people that God doesn't exist and they believe in an imaginary friend and, and all of this. They use really harsh terms. These same people, I'm seeing it online all the time, and I'm not going to mention any names, are trying, are saying these same things about Proxima Centauri B. Well, there must, I believe there is life there. I think there, there is probably life there uh, if all of these things happened. Well, you know what that is? That is a statement of belief. That is not a statement of science. You are making a statement about a belief in science. But, and, and they don't even realize it. They will attack, these same militant atheists will attack a Christian for having a belief in God uh, and use words like imaginary friend and, and delusions and all of this kinds of stuff, where at the same time, they're engaged in the exact same kind of thinking. And that's what really irritates me about this. Could Proxima Centauri have life? Sure, if a lot of things are true. But that is not a statement of science. That is a statement of opinion and belief. And it isn't going to be until we get more data, for example, when the James Webb Space Telescope launches, looks at Proxima Centauri and measures the light as it leaves Proxima Centauri and passes. Well, you can't do it because you, you can't even do it then. One, I was going to say that, that it measures the light of, the, of any atmosphere that might be there. Uh, and we can know that it at least has an atmosphere. But we can't do that with JWST because Proxima Centauri B doesn't eclipse it doesn't transit its star. So we have to find other ways of finding out if it even has an atmosphere or not. So we don't even know that. And until we know that at minimum, uh, we can't even speculate further. So I don't know. This is my little thought process with, um, with these exoplanets. I, since this is the first time you're listening to my podcast, my direct podcast, um, I feel like I should, you know, you're going to learn a lot about me this way because I, I feel really um, inclined to sort of share a lot of things I wouldn't share on my videos on this podcast. So I am, I am recording this on anchor.fm and it, and it's being syndicated. Most people are listening to this on Spotify, but if you're on anchor and you want to send me a audio response to this idea to this topic, I'll be happy to engage you in this discussion and we can go and talk about this a little bit, bit, bit further. But remember, what we know about Proxima Centauri is very, or Proxima Centauri B is very, very little. We know only the things that I told you. It has a period of 11.2 days. The amount of starlight that it receives maybe should give it Earth-like temperatures if Proxima Centauri isn't too uh, active and it has a minimum mass. The smallest mass it can be is 130% of the earth. So it's just a little bit more massive than our planet. That's all we know. And so let's keep that in mind. These papers that are coming out, I'm reading this on fizz.org, by the way. Uh, and there's a study that is, is really, I think being highly speculative. Um, although they are saying we don't know and we have a lot, huge range of uncertainty, they're saying that we shouldn't give up on the idea of habitability, but that's the only real point they can make uh, in this scientific, so-called scientific paper. And I'm really annoyed with the militant atheist response to all of this. So anyway, it's time to move on. All right, I just finished 
uploading, recording, editing, all the stuffs that I had to do to get uh, Space Fan News number 247 put up on YouTube, and it's up there now. And it's all about the first two worlds of the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. took me a lot of uh, time to get that up, but I finally have it up now. And while I was doing this story, it occurred to me that it follows a lot of what I was thinking as I wrote that script kind of goes along with the theme of this podcast, which is sort of this this exuberant exoplanet hype that we all have. And this tendency of astronomers to publish information that they don't really have all uh, available yet, but they do seem to be making a lot of conjecture or um, wishful thinking is what I I guess is the best way to put it in, in a lot of these cases. So in case you didn't watch space fan news, uh, but you need to go do that. If you haven't, please, thank you very much. Uh, is I'll give, I'll give you a brief summary here. So this week, uh, the, uh, the couple of so the authors, some of the members of the test mission published a paper, published two papers about two discoveries of the first two exoplanets to come out of the test survey. And these data were taken using the tests, data alert system. This is this thing that they are setting up. It's an automated data alert system that will alert them right away if there is a possibility of a candidate planet. Now, this, what, what we need to understand about that, that alert system is that it is in beta test right now, and, they, and so it's still being worked out. So I think we need to be a little bit cautious about these discoveries. Nevertheless, people have already started publishing papers based on uh, this data alert system. And so I'll tell you what they found, and then I'll give you some comments on it. So the first the first paper uh, to come out is uh, from a group of people who announced a new planet around the pi, the star called Pi Mensa. And it is now this star already had a Jovian planet around it. It's called Pi Mensa B, and it had a it goes once around its star uh, every four, 5.7 years. This is the Jovian planet, okay, that was already there. The one that was just announced and seen by TESS was called Pi Mensa C, and it has uh, a, a year, get this, folks, its year, the time it takes to go around the sun once, is 6.27 days. That's right, 6.27 days. It is roughly, according to the transit light curves, about 2.14 uh, times the uh, size of the Earth in radius. It's too bad it's not 3.14. Wouldn't that be great? Because then we could have pi, Mensa, and then it could be 3.14 times larger. Anyway, I know I'm a nerd. And uh, so <laughs> this star, by the way, is 60 light years away. Uh, it's roughly the same distance or in the same neighborhood as, say, TRAPPIST-1 is. And it's also about 4.8 times as massive as the Earth. Now, TESS was designed and sort of um, uh, maximized. It was... Um, it was designed to uh, to be especially sensitive to planets of this type. These size planets are called super Earths, and it was uh, uh, tuned, is what I meant to say. <laughs> Tess has been sort of finely tuned to be sensitive. Sorry, the the word went away from me for a minute. Uh, to see these um, to see these size planets of super Earths are generally about twice as large. Sometimes they're as much as. Uh, uh, five times the size of the Earth, but they weigh up to maybe 15 times 
as the mass of the sun and they're rocky worlds. And so these are super earths. And uh, so that was the first one that it found. The second one that they claimed was uh, another planet uh, around a star called LHS 3844. It has, <laughs> this is incredible. It has a year, the time it takes to go around the sun of 11 hours. That's less than half of our days. It goes around the sun once. It's also, and it's about 49 years, 49 light years away. So here, there you go. Those are the two plants. You can learn a little bit more about it on Space Fan News. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Um, what I want to talk about is what was also said in those papers. And I'm starting to get concerned with not just the hype around exoplanets, but what astronomers are doing to get attention drawn to themselves in the course of this. Now, TESS is an amazing mission. It's going to do amazing things. We are going to see it's going to discover tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of new exoplanets while it's in orbit and its mission for the next two years. We know TESS is going to do a lot of incredible, make a lot of incredible discoveries. So why is it then, in the paper especially about uh, LHS 3844, why do they feel the need to talk about water? Because they don't know if there's any water there. There was even talk about, well, even though this is around an M, an M uh, class dwarf star, which is what LHS 3844 is, then it could the even if it is an active dwarf with a lot of radiation coming off, and even if it is so close to the star that it's only going around once every 11 hours, that if it had, it could have potentially so much water on it that even with the star, the star could blow most of it off and it would still have some left. The paper actually said that. And I'm thinking, wow, you really can get a lot of information out of uh, this new data alert system. Um, now, of course, they don't know that. They don't know if Tess has any water. They don't, all they know, all you can find out from a mission like Tess is you can tell that there's a planet there you can get a rough idea of its diameter because of how much block light it blocks from the star. And you can get a general idea of how far away it is from this, from the star by looking at its period. And you can also, I think doing some other things, get the mass of the star, although I'm not quite sure how they derive the mass uh, from just a light curve, but apparently it can be done because they did it here. That's it. That's all you can learn. Now, the reason here's why I think this story actually came out. I think that the guys wrote the paper, they sent it out to AAS Letters, which is not a peer-reviewed journal. It's just a place that people go to publish things quickly. And I think it came out a little bit uh, probably before anybody wanted to, because what people are doing now, astronomers, when they write a paper, is they post it on something called AstroPH or, uh, or uh, AstroArchive, I guess. It's an archive run by Cornell University where everybody puts their papers uh, in and uh, anybody can look at it. They haven't been accepted yet, or they, they generally don't put them on there until the paper's been accepted by a journal. But sometimes they just do it anyway. They just publish papers anyway or put papers on that mailing list. And what journalists have started doing, people like me, and I'm not really a journalist, but I do Space Fan News, but what people who are wanting to get the, the first scoop on a given science story are doing is they're monitoring that uh, list, that archive of all of the astronomy papers that are coming out. And there are a lot that come out every single day, several dozens each day. 
And then they see something like, oh, a test exoplanet, and they immediately start talking about it. Now, this has not been peer-reviewed. It has not been accepted by a journal yet. It's just been submitted. And so, but still, we all saw the news releases and the press releases just fly off. And that's concerning to me because we need to wait. And I think in this rush to everybody, like the journalists, uh, 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 they want to be first to report something. And the astronomers themselves want to be the first to write a paper on something. Uh, it's all, you know, they just want to get, uh, they just, they just, everyone, everybody wants to be famous. And astronomers want to be the ones that get called up uh, for the, the news shows and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think this is starting to be a pattern that I'm getting a little concerned about. Uh, astronomers um, are saying things and they're writing in their papers things that they think the public wants to hear because they want to be noticed. But that's dangerous because they're saying a lot of things that are really stretching the truth. I'm not saying they're lying or they're being honestly or dishonest, but they are being misleading. And uh, it's it's starting to become a bigger, it's especially a big deal with exoplanets because everybody wants to know, everybody wants to find the first habitable world. But we're, nobody, and I'm here to tell you this now, folks, with tests with Kepler before it and all of the ground-based observatories looking at uh, exoplanets, we're not going to have a good idea of habitability until we launch JWST. JWST is going to go up into space and it's going to look at any atmosphere. It will be able to directly detect if there is an atmosphere. That's the first thing we've got to see in a planet is does it even have an atmosphere? And if it does, that makes it a really good candidate for life. But we need to know more about that atmosphere. We don't just need to know that it has one. We need to be able to see what's in that atmosphere. And the way JWST is going to be able to tell us is by looking at the starlight as it passes through that atmosphere in, in, by using one of its spectrographs that's on board. And once it does that, it can tell us what elements are in that atmosphere. And from there, then, boy, for the first time, we can really say, you know what? This is a really good potential habitable world. It's still not definitive yet. We still need more information, but that's going to get us our next step. And we're not going to get there until JWST launches. So I wish people would shut up about habitability and whether or not planets have water and whether or not, they, because we don't even know if they have atmospheres yet. So we need to be careful. And that's, I think this exoplanet hype is getting really out of control in a general sense. Um, let me know what you think. I am posting this on anchor.fm and that has the ability to let you respond to me. If you're also on it, send me a, a vocal or a, an audio message. And if you're nice and you're not mean to me, I will play it back and I'll try to answer your questions and we can have a conversation about this. Let me know what you think on this. Um, in addition to this podcast, this is the deep astronomy podcast. I also and posting all of the audio for, from all of our audio, I'm sorry, our um, live astronomy hangouts so that people can listen to them instead of just having to watch them on YouTube. So that's where we're at. Spread the word, folks. This is the first uh, Deep Astronomy podcast. I'm thinking of calling it the Deep Astronomy Show, mostly because I have a graphic that says that. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. Um, anyway, guys, that'll, I'm going to go ahead and post this. I want to thank everybody for listening. And as always, keep 
looking up.